Io posso parlare per la mia esperienza personale, io arrivo qui nel 1991, verso settembre di quell'anno, innamorata di, di una scrittura, di un diario, I came here around September of 1991. I was in love with the writing in one diary that moved me in a very particular way. It was when I read by pure chance because my sister, who works here at the archive and who was already working here in 1991, asked me if I could help her interpret the writing of a young Italian-Israeli man. He lived in Haifa and he wrote an extraordinary diary in the 70s when he came to Milan. He was very young, and all of a sudden he became a sort of leader for the student movement. It's a very lived-in diary, very hard-fought. His name is De Rabah. The diary is very full of life, and it's also very personal, very intimate. De Rabah left many, many diaries here in Pieve, all handwritten and original, so to speak. And he titled this collection, Io amo Antonietta, I love Antonietta. So it's immediately clear that the personal component of this diary is very strong. And what also comes through very strongly is the context of the years during which it was written. And so I said, hey, if this is what diaries are, then I'll nominate myself to read them. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, ACLS Fellow and Migrations Fellow, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. The voice you heard is Natalia Kanji, who is the director of the Fondazione Archivio Diaristico Nazionale, or the Italian National Diary Archive Foundation, which is located in the Tuscan town of Pieve Santo Stefano. In this episode in our season on crossing, we're thinking about crossing not only in terms of physical borders, but the crossing of memories, both individual and collective. And we're reflecting on the place of memory, life writing, and this particular diary archive. I'm back with my co-host, Dr. Elena Bellina, who visited the archive with me this summer. Hi, I'm Elena Bellina, adjunct faculty in the Italian department at New York University. And yes, Eleanor, this past summer we met in July in Pieve di Santo Stefano to visit the archive, sit down and talk with Natalia. And we visited this beautiful place, which is not just an archive, because it collects memories of all sorts, written memories by people who decided to donate their memoirs or their diaries or collections of letters um, at the end of their lives, or that uh, descendants found at a certain point. And so they decided to donate these precious um, memories uh, to, to the archive that collects them and preserves them. Yeah, and I think, you know, so this archive contains, and, and of course also the museum, as you're saying, and the surrounding events, the, the archive as a whole contains all kinds of memories by people um, documenting their own experiences and their, their family and their community experiences over m- more than 200 years of history. Um, and of course, for, for our purposes here, we're especially interested in the fact that it's also Um, effectively a kind of migration archive because a significant amount of the materials that the archive contains are telling people telling their own experiences of migration, be it 
um, to Italy, from Italy, or even within Italy, so internal migration. And so it becomes this really significant place for coming to understand both migration experiences as a whole and also Italian culture and history through these narratives of mobility. Yeah, the, the National Diary Archive was actually uh, created by journalist Saverio Tutino, um, who decided in the 1980s, after a long career of uh, foreign correspondents from different parts of the world, especially uh, from Cuba, uh, he decided to uh, create a place where Italians or people in Italy could deposit their memoirs and life writings and journals to tell a different version of Italian history. Uh, and so moving through uh, different parts of Italy, and especially Tuscany, he um, finally spoke with the mayor of a little town, Pieve di Santo Stefano, who welcomed his idea and offered him a little space, which is today the Museo del Piccolo Diario, the Museum of the Little Diary. And so starting from, the, from 1984, Saverio Tutino started to uh, go around, ask people to look into their basements, into their drawers, into their family um, warehouses and find their grandparents' their own memories uh, of World War I and World War II and send them into the diary. The first purpose of the, of the archive was in, was in fact to collect these World War II uh, um, stories about um the liberation of Italy and Nazi fascism uh, to tell a different version of recent Italian history. And he was very successful to the point that um, even Natalia Kanji told us that um, Saviro Tutino thought they would receive only a, a few diaries, but those diaries started to be hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands, and nowadays they hold a huge collection so this is a place that's really interesting for people who who are focused on the Italian context, but of course it has really important connections with longer histories and traditions of life writing related to migration experiences. And I think listeners might be familiar with the work of people like um, Kurdish Iranian journalist and now author and filmmaker Beruz Bushani, who uh, documented his experience in the Manus Island prison and is now living in New Zealand. So he documents, he actually wrote this memoir via text message um, and it's now been published and has won a national literary award in Australia from the time that he was in, in imprisoned while waiting an asylum decision on his case. Um, and we can think of a lot of other, um, you know, narratives like this where somebody is um, using you know, any of a variety of media or forms to document their own experience, either looking back on their life or even documenting it while it's happening in different ways. Um, and so then in the archive, that becomes a place where um, people who have uh, written about these kinds of experiences in relation to Italy can have their story preserved for other people to access and um and, and reflect on and think about and, and use in different ways um, in research and in art. And, and that's part of what we're here to talk about today. So these different uses of these migration narratives that a place like the National Archive Diary, the National Diary Archive um, is holding and preserving. And Eleanor, yes, as a matter of fact, the archive has uh, life writing that dates back to the 1700s up to nowadays. And uh, as you said, these take very different shapes and formats. I'm thinking of um, a diary written on little cigarette slips by Italian prisoners of wars in Northern Africa, where they literally kept these little pieces of um, 
of paper in their pocket. But it's very important. It's it's a national um, piece of memory that the archive preserves so well. Yeah, and so I think part of what we're going to be hearing as we listen to Natalia Kanji talk about her work with the archive and share a couple of narratives that that illustrate some of what what is kept there, um, and and we'll hear from also a researcher who's used the archive recently. And I think in in hearing their accounts, part of what we're thinking about is. Um, First of all, what kind of record does this create? So what does it mean to have a record, in this case, especially of of migration that comes from people's personal narratives and their own documented experiences? And what kind of perhaps alternative version of history does that offer us? And, and exactly to address this question of different voices from different people passing through Italy, moving in or out of Italy, um, the uh, the archives starting in, in 2014 decided to create a very specific collection and uh, uh, entries of writings by migrants, the so-called DIMID, an acronym that stands for Diari Multimediali Migranti, Multimedial Diaries by Migrants to, through, from the Italian peninsula. Uh, that has become a very important moment in Italian collective uh, history right now, because every year, uh, different people from different parts of the world, for different reasons in Italy, uh, send their personal um, stories to be shared uh, and to be kept and preserved by the diary uh, about their experiences moving through the Mediterranean, Africa, uh, Central Europe, even the US or, or, or South America. So in this episode, we want to give a sense of how people are thinking about and working with this archive. So you're going to hear from Natalia Kanji herself. She's going to recount a couple of stories that have been especially meaningful to her in her work with the archive. And we'll also hear from Georgia Alu, who is a researcher who was visiting the archive when we were there this summer, um, in summer 2022. <laughs> che abbiamo acquisito piuttosto recentemente, di un siciliano che si chiama Antonino Di Rosa, lui è nato a Modica, e, no anzi lui non è nato a Modica, lui è nato a Buenos Aires. E, e poi però c'è questa nascita, i genitori che ritornano a Modica. There's a memoir we acquired rather recently by a Sicilian man named Antonino Di Rosa. He was born in Modica. No, actually, he wasn't born in Modica. He was born in Buenos Aires. But after his birth, his parents returned to Modica. And then, because of World War I, his father was called to duty and went to war. War always creates a before and an after, especially World War I, when it comes to immigration. In terms of Italian immigration, and then this family returned to Buenos Aires with this young boy who was a little bit more grown up and had a strong desire to go to the United States. 
He was 15 years old, and it's really extraordinary to see about how many of these young men were around this age, only 15 or 16, when they managed to get travel authorization from the consulates. Antonino di Rosa brought his parents, because obviously he couldn't go anywhere alone, to the Italian consulate. And after he managed to overcome his mother's resistance, because of course she didn't want him to leave, the consul made him promise to lead a righteous life, to never compromise. And so they trusted in the judgment of a 15-year-old, probably more to reassure his mother than anything else. And he was given the documents he needed to go to the United States. This level of detachment is very moving because obviously the mother knows that Antonino is a young boy. And when she goes with him and he's getting ready to embark, she leaves him in the care of a non-Italian woman who is traveling with her two kids. She asked her to watch over him and take care of her son, which brings a lot of references to our minds. Because how many times have we read of children who were left in the care of others, especially on journeys from south to north? Casual passers-by who are spotted on a train and picked maybe because they had a reassuring face, you know? And that's what happened with Antonino's mom. Antonino arrived in the U.S. in 1925 and started working. He was forced to take jobs that we could say were less desirable, those that are often taken every time a new population arrives in a country. What we do know, however, is that we lose track of this man in 1943 during World War II. We don't know more about what he might have done, at least not from his writing, because that's another thing. People who write about themselves tell you their story up to a certain point. They don't need to tell us everything, and so often they leave us with a desire to know what happened next. But something incredible that Di Rosa did was ultimately set up a small, or really not that small, coal company. He was able to sell coal to Roosevelt, and there's even a signed receipt by him that proves it. And we're able to see that there really are so many of these kinds of immigrant experiences and stories that seem one of a kind, but there are so many of them. Firmata da Roosevelt che attesta che quest'uomo, ecco, questi tipi di esperienze migratorie che sono evidentemente esperienze singolari, eh, ce ne sono tantissime. I think when you hear Natalia talk about this story, you'll get a sense of her amazing familiarity with the stories that are in the archive. And it's it's interesting to me. I mean, she's making, you know, she's she's talking a lot about also the the important connections across these historical periods. So this story is is a special story, but she's also highlighting the fact that we're talking about very young people who are crossing borders, sometimes on their own, sometimes, um, you know, with the help of, you know, a, a distant relative, maybe, or they have a contact somewhere where they're going. Yeah, and it, she keeps underlining that what happened back then is not that different from what's happening these days, uh, as we see uh, on TV and on all these uh, stories about minors crossing borders and traveling on their own. Uh, it's really history repeating itself, because as she underlines, I mean, 
whom, whomever writes uh, his or her life, whomever writes their lives, I mean, they never tell you the whole story. They tell you what they want you to hear. And so you always wonder what happened, uh, what really happened back then, or when you find lacune, what, 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 what was going on. And very often it's history happening, World War One, World War Two, big other wars or conflicts or major political events, or just personal reasons. Because very often writing um, a journal or a memoir implies also sharing parts of your own uh, lived experience that uh, are not easy to be shared. Yeah, and I think a few thoughts on on what you're saying. One is that looking at the at life writing lets us also ask important questions about the differences over time. So it's interesting to think about his experience of obtaining documents or thinking about the resources that he had or didn't have access to when he arrived, how he might've been received in the US, his family's history of migration as part of his own story um, and how that does or doesn't resonate with, uh, with children and young people, youth who are who are crossing borders today. Um, so, you know, how the world has changed in the meantime. So, I mean, part of what we're getting here is the, the resonances and frictions when we look at individual experience in these important collective historical moments, like you're saying, this is a moment, you know, around the war, around big, um, big national developments. And now we're thinking about migrants moving in a globalized world. And how does that, um, how does that prompt us to ask different questions about their experiences or their rights or what what obstacles they face and how they confront them. I'll say one other thing. Um, it's true. Natalia's comment about people writing about themselves and them wanting to hear the story. You also touch on this, Elena. I mean, I think one of the things that it's important to keep in mind in engaging with this kind of archive, and this is certainly what um, what researchers are in part interested in is that these autobiographical materials are doing at least two things. They're both documenting an individual experience, and we can talk about also how that an individual experience that's very connected to collective experiences, but they're also telling us, as you said, Elena, what that person wants potential readers imagined readers, sometimes family members who are receiving letters, sometimes potential readers of a of a memoir and autobiography, what they want people to remember, to know about them. So it's always um, a particular, you know, it's a select set of memories and a particular set of choices about how they represent themselves. Yeah. And this is a question that, I mean, we both had to uh, deal with when we first approached the diary in the past years to go and, and do research. I mean, how and why people decide to write their, uh, their lives and what they decide to share with us. And you have to uh, be aware of the limits and the and, and the great resources that this uh, life writing represent for, um, for us as researchers, for 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 historical uh, national purposes or in general for um, uh, comparative um, analysis of what migrants have to face or had to face through time, through history, through different countries and continents. I mean, it, the, all, the millions of, Italian, of Italians who migrate to other continents that 
sent tons of materials to the diary archive. I mean, are an example, but they also speak to what's happening nowadays uh, to this side of the world uh, with other t- groups of migrants and, of course, to what's going on in the Mediterranean with uh, the millions of people who have been trying to cross the Mediterranean to get to Lampedusa or to Italy or to Spain. I was just going to say that one of the things I always think about in working with migration narratives of different kinds, and certainly in the, in the case of life writing, and different kinds of testimonial narratives is that we could certainly now, but we could think also historically, migrants are always uh, made to tell their stories. So when they cross a border, when they apply for a visa, when they're asked, uh, when they meet people in the communities where they arrive, they're constantly being prompted to testify to their experience. And so one of the interesting things about looking then at at the materials in the archive is to think about to what extent, you know, when they've had time and the ability to tell their story in their own words for an imagined or a different audience, how do they choose to tell it? And how does that resonate or not with the versions that we might hear in more official settings? So um, in an asylum court where someone is is talking about why they fled or in a in someone who's, you know, making their case for a particular visa application or someone who's introducing themselves to neighbors or co-workers in a place where they recently arrived. All of these things are, you know, different kinds of, involve different representations of the self and different accounts of the migration experience. And I think we always gain more by thinking across these different accounts and thinking about what might have prompted their telling and who they're being told to and what that lets us know about the context of migration or about the person who was crossing borders. So to think about different ways that that researchers, that scholars and researchers are engaging with these materials, um, we, we felt really lucky to overlap in our visit with Dr. Giorgia Alou, who is Associate Professor and Chair of Italian Studies in the School of Languages and Cultures at the University of Sydney, and who reflected on some of her own use of the archives with us. Georgia Lu uh, is working right now on an Australian Research Council-founded um, project, Opening Australia Multilingual Archives, with which the, um, they are trying to retell uh, modern Australian history through the lenses of the migrants who got there from different parts of the world. And she's dealing, of course, with Italian uh, migration to the uh, to Australia, and in particular with World War One and World War Two prisoners of war who were brought there or arrived there, and therefore were detained in camps first in military camps, and then stayed or returned were repatriated to Italy and returned later to Australia uh, as migrant workers. I think these first person first person narratives are um, are very precious. They are jewels that really tell us uh, what um, uh, people suffered, experienced, and uh, um, things that uh, they uh, very often um, didn't have the chance to express. Uh, their diaries are very important because they express this sense of diversity, displacement, uh, um, feeling uh, different, uh, marginalization, uh, discrimination um, that are experienced, uh, lived by uh, somebody who uh, has been 
eradicated from their own uh, country. So experiences that they share also with uh, um, the Italians who um, were already residing in, uh, in, uh, in Australia. From my point of view, what I'm looking at, uh, um, I find very uh, fascinating this, uh, uh, the way they express themselves so with a language that very often is very basic, um, uh, grammatically incorrect, but that nevertheless uh, um, shows uh, this um, uh, multilingual uh, phenomenon in the sense that uh, they write in Italian, uh, sometimes their Italian is uh, basically um, regional Italian, is a dialect, is a broken Italian, but also they make an effort to, to um, express themselves um, in, in English, the English that they have uh, actually learned in the camp or uh, through relationships uh, with uh, um, the Australians or the people around them. So this again shows their, their need also to uh, interlace with the environment on, around themselves and their um, the way they expressed their feelings, their emotions, uh, their fears. Uh, uh. As we heard from uh, Georgia's uh, words, very often these ordinary memories or life writings by ordinary people are not written in perfect Italian or perfect uh, English or other languages. It's very often broken Italian or a use of mixed dialects and the other languages that these people bring with them, including current um, migrants' narratives that stories for the for the demi. I mean, I mean the linguistic aspect talks about how they are passing through Italy or how they are moving to, as we said at the beginning, to or from uh, Italy to other parts of the world because language really uh, witnesses all these geographical movements and crossings because it bears uh, crossing culture, crossing memory and crossing language uh, is really part of the of, of migrating and telling or retelling your life as a migrant. One of the reasons, again, you know, what, what you're talking about in terms of language is perhaps one of the reasons why often life writing and these different kinds of autobiographical media and materials wouldn't be considered literary, quote unquote. And that's an important point of discussion in, in studies of life writing more broadly. And I think it makes it even more important to, to that this archive is giving a place to these narratives. So while it's equally important to be able to study the published memoirs that have gone through um, drafting and production and editing and that are marketed for particular publics and sold in bookstores and things like that, we, you know, thanks to this archive and to, uh, to other initiatives that are helping to produce and disseminate people's stories in this way, um, I'm thinking about the Archivio Memoria Migranti, which is also, a, you know, the, the Archive of Migrant Memories, which is a film and writing archive that collaborates sometimes with with this one. You know, um, groups like this are working directly with migrants to um, to help get their stories out to publics and also to preserve them again as part of the historical record. Um, and these are stories that wouldn't necessarily get that kind of literary recognition and yet we we can recognize are are nevertheless very important and and an important part of this this record and will be for years to come. You know, one of the things that happens when you're in the archive is that suddenly you get a chance to see stories 
next to each other that might not necessarily be told together. So you might have, for example, thinking even about contemporary migration, you might have um, you might pull a story um, written by an Albanian woman who arrived in the 1990s, and you might read that. And then in the next hour, you might be reading something by a Cameroonian uh, who arrived, you know, Cameroonian man who arrived in, in 2016 or 2017. And that also, I think, is a really important aspect of the work. And it helps us, again, ask better and different questions and think about how these experiences um resonate or don't um, across contexts and across moments in time. So we're going to hear from Natalia again, sharing with us one of the stories from the Dimi project about recent migration narratives. There's also my friend Karamoko Fufana from the Ivory Coast. This was in 2016. He was a tailor, and unfortunately he does something different now because he was fantastic at it, so, so great. This is an extraordinary story of hospitality around Fabia that I'll talk a little bit about. Karamoko says that he was from a family that loved and respected each other, but then they were struck by death. His parents died young, and during that time of suffering, he had the desire to make something of himself and study. His father had made his older brother study, but Karamoko was sent to become a tailor. They had a sister, too. He has a way of telling the stories in the midst of the bloody riots in the Ivory Coasts, up until the jihadists arrived and attacked the houses, which made him say, this is enough. Karamoko talks about being detained in Libya, but he also says that he will never be able to talk about the things he's seen. Karamoko's is a story that ends well, because he arrived in Pavia, arrived in the spas in Saliceterme, to an abandoned spa building where many of these young men were housed. There was a teacher there named Daniela, who had taught her whole life and was now retired. She was Tuscan, and her husband Alberto was also Tuscan, and they had been there for an entire lifetime because he worked for an Italian bank. Daniela was teaching these young men. Eventually, she said, I have to leave my house every day to come here. Why don't you all just come to my house? And so three of them started going to Daniela's house, a small villa that I've been to. And the group got smaller and smaller until only Karamoko remained. And they have a daughter, but they consider him a son, too. And they gave him a part of the house that they didn't use to work as a tailor. And so I went, and there was this whole workshop set up. I can work elsewhere, said Alberto. But anyway, I'll keep it brief. Alberto is someone who loves the archive. He found out about it through me, and he's never strayed away. He invited me to Boguera to present on the archive and on Caramoco's story. He was obviously there, too, and the room was full. And imagine that, in Boguera, there aren't really places where people are used to hearing these stories. At one point, Caramoco spoke for a long time, and he told us so many things to the point that he eventually burst out crying and left. And that's the thing, right? He was speaking for himself. I didn't ask him anyway. He started speaking about the things he wanted to tell us about. But it really hits you then. That's when you can understand that the things that are left unsaid are so present. It can really catch you off guard. E quindi quando sono andata io ad esempio c'era questo laboratorio allestito perché dice ma dove può andare a lavorare? Io può andare a lavorare fuori, mi dice Alberto, deve per forza lavorare in un posto protetto. Insomma, vabbè, ve la faccio breve. Alberto, eh, che è una persona che, che, che ama molto l'archivio, che ha conosciuto l'archivio tramite Dimmi, ma che ora eh, non se ne è più distaccato, eh, mi invita a, a Boghera per fare una presentazione dell'archivio, della storia di Caramoco, ovviamente c'è anche lui, e, 
e a un certo punto eh, la sala era piena, voi immaginate voi che era, insomma non sono proprio posti abituati all'ascolto di queste storie. E a un certo punto lui ha parlato moltissimo, ha raccontato cose che lui è scoppiato in un pianto e se n'è andato. E, e quello è il, 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 il tema, no? Cioè tu hai di fronte, e lui parlava da sé, eh, io non gli, ho, non gli ho proprio chiesto nulla se non di iniziare a raccontare da dove voleva lui, però capisci bene che il non detto è talmente, ti, 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 ti colpisce alle spalle e, e, e poi provoca quel tipo di, 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 di situazione. Fa pensare anche a quello che dicevi prima sulla fiducia, cioè il, il, I'm thinking also about what you said earlier about trust and how much um, when someone writes for the first time they have to establish trust and then maybe in telling it in a different way or with their voice instead of in writing a different story can emerge as the relationship grows. Sì, sì, no, io su questo sono convintissima e che, che ma un po' guarda, adesso stiamo parlando di, di, delle ragazze e dei ragazzi che hanno partecipato al progetto Dimmi. I'm completely convinced of this. And look, right now we're talking about the young men and women who have participated in the Dimi project, but in reality, the thing about trust is that it's essential for whoever decides to tell their story. I could tell you about people who have followed us for over 30 years who have only now decided to bring us their own diaries a few months ago. This happened a couple months ago. Someone told us, I've been following you since 1989. And then they brought us their diaries that went from 89 to 99 with thousands of personal thoughts and difficulties and problems. These diaries are very personal, so you may not know what is behind them, but you know that there's always something. This relationship then, this trust is fundamental. The fact that you need to feel that an institution is a place that will welcome you and safely take care of the things you leave behind. This is fundamental. Cioè il fatto che tu devi sentire un'istituzione come l'istituzione che, che accoglierà e che salvaguarderà le, le tue tracce, questo è fondamentale. Well, we just heard the two of the main points we were making before in the sense that here Natalia stresses the fact that first of all when someone writes, he or she has to cope with things they would never imagine. And so in the case, in the case she mentions with Karamoko Fufana, I mean he really burst into tears during the presentation and left the stage because he realized at that moment that the trauma he lived through that had remained uh, silenced up to that moment. And at the same time, the fact that, I mean, in, in archive is a great place for us as researchers, but at the same time, they have to get the trust of the people who decide to donate their materials to them. And it takes decades um, to do that because i mean, sharing such a personal part of your life as your life writing, it's not an easy thing to do. And when you think of, of a case like Karamoko, who, I mean, lived through uh, these, uh, through crossing the Mediterranean, the uh, Libyan camps, Natalia and her team really managed to create this sense that this is a safe place where I can express myself and live my memories with uh, and someone can use them because they will take care of it. So trust um, in uh, trust is a big uh, is a big deal for um, an archive where you can uh, find this material, use this material, and leave them with them. They protect them, as she kept 
stressing during our conversation, right? Yeah, and I think the example here is, um, you know, the way that she talks about his story and their relationship is a reminder that the archive is not just this sort of closed off fixed place, but that it's also a set of relationships and an ongoing process, especially now that they're really you know, in these moments for the prize, for the DME project, when they're really soliciting more narratives. And, you know, we know that Natalia also and her team stay in touch with the people who share their stories, their ideas to create webs of connection um, and, and bring people into conversation around these experiences. And yeah, trauma is definitely part of that, not only in these very contemporary stories, but looking across the archive as well. Um, and thinking about the the different struggles that people have faced as they've crossed borders and adjusted to to life in new places. And that's another reason why looking at the, at life writing as an instance of both individual experience that is absolutely personal, um, that itself contains gaps, that is not necessarily a complete story. She talks about what's unsaid too, but that also resonates in different ways with the collective experience. So in Karamoku's narrative, we hear about the Libyan camps, um, as you were saying, and um, I think listening to his, you know, having access to his account. So to go to the archive and be able to look at his account and maybe a few other accounts is also a way of um, filling in more a more complex sense of what those experiences are like, which are often either left out of for example, media coverage or political debate, or they're only told in very sort of sensational ways or as kind of generic narratives. And to have the account of somebody who has actually been there and, and survived that experience is, is a really incredible part of the record. And it's incredible also the way that the diary through these initiatives can reach out to many Italians and to, to an Italian audience that don't know much about what's going on um, in the lives of these people crossing the Mediterranean these days. So to think about, I wanted to, you know, to add one note also about the DIMI project, which means tell me also as an acronym, um, DIMI, tell me. So it's a, it's also a sort of play on words. And I think it signals uh, this other aspect that the, the archive is, is constantly doing, which is that they're not just collecting. They're not just a repository for people's materials, but they're actively participating in shaping the memories that will get preserved by issuing these calls and by actively, you know, th th I think it's significant that, th that Natalia and colleagues have said now for almost 10 years, the stories of people who have arrived to Italy in the last you know, few decades are an important part of this history, and we need those documented as well in their voices. Um, and and I think that it's important that those also become part then of the of the historical archive that the that the National Diary Archive represents. And for Dimi, as you said, Eleanor, it's not just tell me, as Natalia underlined many times during our conversation in this past July. It's also the idea that you can reshape Italian narrative through the people who are now becoming Italian or are in Italy are part of um, what Italy is nowadays. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a multidisciplinary, multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us on Twitter at CornellMig. For Italian-speaking listeners, you can find excerpts from archive holdings and more information on the DIMI initiative via the website and social media pages of the Italian National Diary Archive. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, ACLS Fellow and Migrations Fellow with the Mario Anaudi Center for International Studies. The episode you've just heard was co-hosted by Elena Bellina, adjunct faculty in Italian at New York University. VoiceOver was provided by translator and interpreter Isabella Corletto, thanks to support from the Department of Modern Languages and Cultures and the Arnold and Anne Lisio Endowed Distinguished Professorship in Italian Language and Culture at the University of Rochester. Our producer is Megan DeMint. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize Cayuga Nation sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.